0: This is a CNIB Foundation podcast.
1: Because Braille. Hi, welcome back to Because Braille. Today I'm in the studio in Toronto with Chris Chamberlain, who has been a lifelong Braille user. Thank you for joining us, Chris.
0: Thank you, Rhonda. Happy to be here today.
1: Maybe we can start out by having you tell us a little bit about how Braille came into your life and what it's done for you.
0: I was born with uh, congenital glaucoma, which is a hereditary um, aspect of blindness, and at age six, I was um, sent off to school at the Ontario School for the Blind at the time, now known as W. Ross MacDonald School, to undergo my education and As of age six, I was introduced to Braille at Brantford, and that became an integral part of our study process through the years at school. So books were provided in Braille. We learned how to read and write Braille on a Braille writer, a Perkins Braille writer, as well as a Braille slate at the time. So Braille was our real means of communication and reading.
1: And did that change for you when you went on to university?
0: It did to a certain extent, except that we then introduced um, tapes, magnetic tape, cassettes, and reel-to-reel tapes in order to read materials that were absent in Braille as far as Braille titles were concerned. So essentially, if a title was available in Braille, I received it in Braille. If it was not in Braille, it was generally read by someone onto a reel-to-reel tape which we used on a four-track tape recorder at the time. We're going back about 45 years here.
1: So did you find that presented many challenges around grammar Mm. and spelling? And I just remember this course I took in hormones and behavior and couldn't get anywhere with it without having the Braille text.
0: In my case, because I picked up Braille at age six, I learned all the grammar, punctuation, the different, uh, you know, sentence structure, paragraphs, that sort of thing at a young, young age. So when I was introduced to um, audio in, in uh, terms of tapes and such, I was already very familiar with um, language, English, grammar, because I had learned it using Braille for the first, you know, eight or nine years of my uh,
1: public in high school. So through the primary years, you learned the skills that you needed to conduct and write and create documents for yourself as a university student. So when you hear people talking about children learning Braille these days and how there's really not much need for it because the technology is so great and there's audible tapes and books and and voiceover and things like that, how do you feel about that?
0: That conjures up a lot of concern on my part because, um, just like a a person with full vision, learning and literacy are extremely important, and only can you uh, discover and and learn literacy through actual reading, either print or braille, and audio uh, loses a lot of the the nuances of of uh, of English grammar and that sort of thing, because you're actually not reading, you're listening. And by listening, you cannot pick up grammar, you cannot pick up spelling, sentence structure, and the way uh, language is written. So in many ways, you're semi-illiterate if all you have is audio or audible available to you. Now, that may sound harsh, but in fact, it's a reality. And for those who grew up learning through the use of print or Braille, they're at a much, much greater advantage than someone who hasn't that uh, that luxury.
1: And in fact, they're actually showing studies that if someone requires Braille and have that skill, their chances of becoming um, meaningfully employed are significantly higher.
0: I'm sure that's true because although... Audio learning and communication is extremely important. Braille can really enhance that ability because you're actually directly in contact with the material itself, whereas I always feel you're once or maybe, well, no, twice removed if you're learning through audio.
1: Also, we were talking earlier about how the English language is such that, you know, you have two words like piercing and piercinging, and they sound very similar, and if you don't really know what you're reading or familiar with the content, you can end up sending some pretty interesting documents.
0: (laughs) That's true. And I think, too, when you're reading Braille as opposed to listening, you're always thinking in terms of... Not just phonetics, but the way a word is presented, the letters, the syllables, the entire word, the entire context of a sentence in its structure, capitals, periods, commas, exclamation marks, which are all absent in audio. So there really is a fuller understanding of the language that you're actually learning in.
1: Makes a lot of sense. One of the other things that I often hear working with young you know with the the little kids is people saying parents should not be trying to teach their kids braille. What is your thoughts on that?
0: i I can't I, I honestly I, I I'm amazed that someone would even think to say that or or would believe that that is not uh, important in someone's life is to learn to communicate through print or Braille. Um,
1: we wouldn't tell a parent not to show their children, you know, picture books or word books, but we're saying to parents, no, let the teachers teach your child Braille. Don't be trying to do that. Uh, and to me, I find that just astounding that, that people say things like that.
0: I think it's astounding, too. In fact, I'm not even sure where it comes from. I, I You know, honestly, it it always shocks me and surprises me when I hear people say, Braille isn't really important. Braille is sort of um, passe.
1: Dying art.
0: Yeah, a dying art. (laughs) No, it actually shouldn't be a dying art. And in fact, it should be stronger than it ever was before with the advent of computers, Braille displays and such that allow one to um, access all kinds of information, far more information than we had in the golden age of Braille. And we can still access that information through Braille, through electronic Braille displays, and we still have the ability to print Braille. Um, to be honest, I think that we should be getting more than ever before with Braille.
1: You mentioned printing, people being able to print Braille. Um, for those who may not know a little bit about how that works, can you sort of uh, tell our audience how that's different than brailing something on a Perkins Brailler or?
0: Sure. Um, we go back the Perkins Brailler was introduced in 1951 if i'm not mistaken and was a wonderful device still is wonderful today a very serviceable uh, device uh, i've owned my Perkins Brailler printer or Braille Perkins Brailler since 1969 and you know what it's never seen a day of service show me anything that doesn't require service uh, for you know more than 50 years Anyway, in the late 70s, um, a company in Florida called Triformations designed the first, what we called a electronic computer-based line printer for blind people. And it was a paper-based printer. In fact, it predated Braille displays. So these large, they were 200 pounds, by the way, they were huge, line printers, were connected to a computer, mainframe, and actually when a screen was printed, which we now get on our computer, that screen, entire screen, was printed as a Braille page. So page by page by page were screens on on a computer display that were actually printed on a, in a Braille printer. So the Braille printer was designed and uh, introduced in the late 70s. And since then, of course, Braille printers have become more refined, smaller, faster. They're still equally as loud because they're usually about seventy to seventy five decibel noise levels. So you want to put a blanket over them or put them in a closet. But the ability to actually print Braille in copious volumes is no problem at all.
1: So with the with that, um, we should be able to expect that Braille. Any, a company or somebody who needs to provide Braille information should not have any reason not to be able to do that now.
0: No, it's, it's, it's readily available. It's easy to translate a document into Braille and print it out for anyone.
1: So why do do you think that pharmaceutical companies and places like that don't automatically provide a Braille you know, document with your prescription?
0: I think it's a matter of cost for some, although it shouldn't be. Um, Braille embossers are relatively inexpensive these days. And certainly the the types of volume that, say, for example, a pharmacy is going to use a Braille printer, it's not really a prohibitive, um, prohibitive item at all, or pro- prohibitive in terms of the actual mechanics, the processing and printing of uh, labels and that sort of thing. It's fairly easy. The question is, somebody needs to be trained in the use of the braille printer and how to produce the braille in, uh, in in some form that's you know meaningful and can work for for the customers and clients.
1: We were talking to someone earlier today, and they were talking about how braille, um, you know, in in Canada, we are by law required to produce you know labels and information in both French and English, and you know, is it is it unreasonable to expect that that should be available in braille?
0: No, I think it is very reasonable. In fact, I point to one. Um, I, I, I had to undergo some surgery about three or four years ago, and I uh, the surgery was was occurring at a local hospital here. And I went to the pre uh, the pre surgery class where they hand out all kinds of information oh, yeah. on the do's and don'ts and what to expect. While you're in the hospital, what to expect when you go home, uh, you know, pamphlets for for family and caregivers to study. Uh, It's interesting that those pamphlets are available in 45 or 50 different languages in print, but you cannot get it in Braille. Not any medical facility in this entire country can provide that in Braille.
1: So is that an entrepreneurial option for somebody?
0: I think it's an, an it could be an entrepreneurial option for somebody it could be something that we should really advocate for within the medical system across the country and I feel that it's it's critical and important that a vision impaired or blind person has the same access to such crucial information as this we we it's not necessarily the only method to produce it in a in a machine-readable, or it should be available in a machine-readable format, but also be available in hard copy Braille.
1: Again, we were talking earlier about when you're reading material that's really important, there's something, there's a connection between your fingers and the page and your brain that Especially when something like stressful, like medical information and instructions, there's an immediacy and confidence in in knowing that that material says what you think it says. And there's no guessing.
0: There's no guessing. And the problem with audio is that you can listen to a word three times and it'll have three different pronunciations to you when your ear is trying to capture the the audio. Um, And you can interpret that differently. Whereas with Braille... It's the same as reading print. it That's what it is, right in front of you. Your fingers are connecting directly with the Braille as a sighted person's eyes would with print in front of them.
1: So with the um, your day-to-day life, Chris, how do you use Braille at home? Is it part of your everyday world?
0: It is to a—it's uh, interesting in my case because I, I have to admit that I am a an audio user when it comes to my computer, my iPhone, my um, you know smartphone, computer, and other electronic devices that actually talk. Having said that, the only reason I don't read more Braille is because of the absence of titles available in hard copy Braille. There's nothing more enjoyable than to sit down at home in an evening with a Braille copy of a book in front of you on your lap and just read. And that's what I did as a kid and as a young adult for probably 20, 25 years. But over time, the gradual disappearance of um, current titles in Braille, periodical magazines in Braille, I started to look towards speech. Now, having said that, I do not uh, read talking books. Talking books, well, I tend to fall asleep. so <laughs> We've heard that a few yeah. times today. Yes. Um, I. Fifteen minutes into a talking book and I am asleep. So I would much rather use Braille. In terms of how I use Braille at home, I have a large, large uh, album collection. Every title of my album collection is labeled in Braille. It's all cataloged and organized alphabetically on shelves. Um, I use some Braille cookbooks at home. I actually use a template on my stove and my microwave oven. I make up a full template so that I can label those two uh, kitchen uh, appliances and so on so that it allows me to, um, you know, access the stove entirely from the cleaning process to temperature up and down, convection roast, convection bake, you know, all the labels are in Braille. Uh, the microwave, what else? Uh, in the kitchen, I probably don't have anything else that's actually braille-labeled. Those are the most uh, important items where that's concerned. I do label certain uh, liquids at home. So, for example, a bottle, of scotch? F- a bottle <laughs> of scotch. Yeah, you know what? That's funny you should mention it. The liquor cabinet is well-labeled, <laughs> just about every bottle. Um, any flammable... Uh, Liquids like um, oven cleaners, drain cleaners, uh, fluids for lighting the barbecue, all of those I definitely have in Braille because I don't want to make a mistake, and I want that in Braille.
1: Again, back to that immediacy of reading the label and knowing what it is, not having to listen or go find a device to read it with.
0: Exactly. That's true. And and that's so important to me that... uh, The items that are most, most important all be Braille labeled and all have a proper place to be stored as well.
1: What about things like filing systems and stuff like that? Do you use Braille labeling for things like that?
0: I do to a certain extent. I have some accordion folders at home. So, for example, certain um, utility bills that I may save, I have them, you know, just the the key on uh, on the actual folder may be either lettered or you know, A, B, C, D, E, or I may have it as as an insurance policy. And I even Braille label certain packages, for example, insurance policy, um, mortgage. It could be anything else like that that I want a, a, a proper label on it that I can immediately read. If I have to use some other audible labeling device, it's slow.
1: So even the time that it takes you to actually create these labels in the first place might be longer. You find that that time is well invested. Well worth invested. it. Yeah.
0: Yes, definitely well worth it.
1: So Chris, you've been a business owner for over 30 years now. Tell us a little bit about how Braille has had an impact on how you do business and how you've used it or not used it and maybe kind of some of the tips you might have for the up-and-coming business people who are going to be where you <laughs> you've been,
0: right, or, or where I once was. Once, well, yes, yes, I've uh, I've recently um, relinquished my business, and uh, but during the years that I was in business, which were uh, three decades anyway, um, I used Braille as a very integral part of my daily processes and and uh, ways of taking. Particularly short notes, if I were on the phone with a customer or whomever, I would often take down information in Braille on my Perkins Brailler because all I wanted was a quick phone number, maybe an address, maybe an email address. So I found putting that to Braille immediately on my Perkins Braille embosser made a lot of sense because it was quick. I felt confident. I had the spelling correct, then I would later transfer that over to my computer into a database or wherever I wanted to hold it and maintain it. Uh, so Braille would just, was a natural way of, of taking notes. And I find that a lot of other people are in the same same situation as myself and actually uh, performed their job similar to mine where they used Braille for the quick note. And I, I wouldn't apologize for it. You know, hey, I'm using 50, 60-year-old technology that works and works perfectly well even today, a mechanical Brailler. I can't say enough for that device. But then I would later put that into some electronic format so that I could then dispose of the paper. And that's how I use Braille in the office, although uh, to a lesser extent, I might use Braille to label again some folders, some envelopes, some uh, critical documents like uh, our minute book or whatever the case was, so that I could keep myself organized on a day-to-day basis. Without that, I would have had to use again some electronic labeling device, which is slow and you know, very, very uh, best way to put it is in in terms of being able to have an immediate uh, grasp of what's going on around me i've I've got to have some braille nearby.
1: Now, I know that other members of your staff also used braille. I, I think the person at the front desk when you came in would often be using braille, so was that more the the norm there to to have notes and messages passed back and forth in Braille?
0: We did it both ways, but a lot of it was Braille. We used some electronic email, that sort of thing, but we did a lot in Braille, and that was because we all trust Braille, we like it, we believe in it, and for a lot of us, it was our first method of communication in a written format. I didn't start with a computer at uh, age six. A lot of kids now really do, where I started with uh, with Braille, hard copy, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Braille, on Braille paper. I and remember those
1: pre-learning Braille, you know, the, the paper with the, the various different textures from the school. And at W. Ross, they actually had a a, um, a methodology where when students came in, whether you could see or not, for the first few years, everybody learned Braille.
0: Yes, it was mandatory. You had to learn Braille. Uh, that was part of the curriculum, and I'm not sure if it still is, but if it isn't, it should be.
1: It's interesting because I have a little bit of vision, and I uh, I am so grateful that my first couple of years, you know, encouraged that Braille usage, right? So that it's always something I've come back to, and if I hadn't learned it, as my vision changes as an adult, I would have had to learn it or had to find a different way of doing it. So, with the um the culture of people using Braille, can you maybe tell us about some of the Braille devices that are on the market that both you know the mechanical ones and sure. the electronic ones and maybe some of the braille displays, what's sort of up and coming and and what's sort of allowed us to continue moving forward? in this world that's so full of technology and changes all the time i i hear people talk about braille on the smartphone and things like that maybe sort of shed some light onto that if you will
0: well if i can uh refer back to the first braille line printer that i ever saw in my life that weighed actually i do remember its entire weight 290 pounds was the size of this device (laughs) And I was – early in my career when I worked for the uh, Ontario Provincial Police, I actually had one of those because I used to uh, print up transcripts and that sort of thing on this big line braille printer. Well, the size of the braille printers became much, much smaller, more refined, and um, we developed not line printers, but then they developed a printer that actually had an embossing head And could print character by character and then, of course, line by line. And beyond that, in around 1982, 83, they actually developed a whole kind of integrated note taking Braille device that was an entire word processor using uh, cassettes for magnetic storage of Braille. And this had a 20, 27 Braille, 27. Cell Braille display on it, and it was called the VersaBraille. The VersaBraille came out in the early '80s. was a magnificent device. allowed you to connect up a Braille printer to uh, print what you'd put on the uh, on the Braille display. You could print it out in in, in uh, ink print, or you could print it out to a Braille printer as hard copy. And you could edit your documents. and This was a proprietary uh, word processor, essentially, is what it was. And beyond that we moved into uh, braille and speech note-taking devices in the mid-late 80s. So you had this small handheld uh, Perkins Braille keyboard input on a device that allowed you to um, take notes. It had a calculator. It had a a very simple database that you could store names, numbers, addresses on. And so it goes. Things just advanced from there. So instead of something being necessarily proprietary, the operating devices became fairly standard. So we were using uh, CPM. And then we moved on to the uh, Microsoft uh, DOS in the early 90s. So uh, we had IBM uh, computers, the uh, personal computers, that you connected a Braille display to. And you could then read what was on the on the screen through the through the braille display and you can manipulate the screen through the braille display too. And they were
1: like fifteen thousand dollars or something. Right? They were.
0: Yeah. And in fact, the first talking computer I had was actually made by Hewlett Packard. The entire system with speech was forty thousand dollars. And that had all of five gigabytes of <laughs> disk storage. You know, which is I have three times that in my pocket, you know, or sorry, uh, five, it was five megabytes. So it was uh, at that time, just an incredible machine and was capable of doing a lot of, um, you know, uh, office based processes. You had again, a a database management system, you had the word processor, you had all kinds of, of, of goodies in there and applications. But as time has gone on, Braille has always been able to hinge on these devices either to be integrated into the device itself as a Braille speech note taker, or you could use a refreshable Braille display that you would either connect to an iPhone, to an Apple computer, to a PC, or any other type of computer out there in order to use the Braille display as a way of reading uh, documents and so on on the screen.
1: So when people talk about Braille keyboard input, what's the advantage to that?
0: The reality of it is that between the Braille keyboard and the QWERTY keyboard, it is much faster to type on a QWERTY keyboard than it is on a Perkins Braille input keyboard. The beauty of the Perkins, a six-dot Perkins keyboard, is that it's small. It's much smaller than a standard QWERTY keyboard, so the device could physically be a smaller footprint.
1: Okay, that makes sense to me. I, was, I wasn't quite sure why people were so excited about being able to do that.
0: They were, because, for example, I'll, I'll, I'll take an example. One uh, popular product, oh, 20, 15, 20 years ago, was the Braille and Speak, which was made by a company called uh, Blazy Engineering, and uh, Blazy was the name of the gentleman who is an absolute genius in, in in his designs and creations and so on so he developed a, an item called the type and speak which was absolutely phenomenal had incredible battery life did all kinds of wonderful things well there was a real interest in a qwerty keyboard uh same version but that same device was then double the size of the uh, braille and speak which was a a perkins keyboard style input but using a QWERTY keyboard, of course, that that um, enlarged the actual footprint and it became a larger device.
1: Well, it's interesting now. I mean, we're talking about um, the amount of technology that's out there and that has been out there for a long time. And working with little kids, I'm always curious about the learning factor. I mean, kids can learn anything. It's pretty interesting to watch them actually absorb information. But one of the challenges has always been for our young people to, by the time they get ready to use a screen reader, they have to already need to know how to type and they need to know how to manipulate the screen reader and they need to know all of these other other pieces. And sometimes with the braille, that's quicker. They're actually being able to learn braille a little bit quicker than they are with the whole typing keyboard because it's a smaller um, number of keys. And, right. and so it's been really uh, interesting as I've worked with the, um, the iOS uh, manual, which is this uh, manual that's been created to teach three-year-olds how to use um, the Apple devices. And it's been really interesting for me to watch these little kids with these Braille displays starting to learn Braille at a phenomenal speed at a really young age. But we don't think it's unusual for a kid who has sight to be able to read their alphabet before they go to school. But a child who knows the Braille alphabet going into JK or SK is kind of like amazing. And I I just think that it's sort of sad that we're still um, not able to get our kids quick enough at the same level as as their peers.
0: It's interesting because you're right. It is the equivalent process. It's the same so, should we feel any more um, startled by that? I don't think so. I agree with you.
1: So in your ideal world, Chris, how would Braille be more available or, or what you know they like dreamed a little bit with me like where where would Braille be that it's not right now?
0: <clears throat> okay, this is a uh, this is something that I felt would make a it would really be a game changer in terms of Braille use and Braille access. If somebody could devise a multi-line Braille display that is a lightweight and be robust and resilient. So right now we have 20, 40, 80 cell Braille displays, which is great. So you have a single line of Braille, which you pan along and it um, allows you to, you know, move along a line and uh, advance. The window, so to speak, either by twenty, forty, or eighty cells. But what would be really nice if we could almost recreate a electronic braille page, as it were, of a standard braille page. So, example, twenty five lines of braille by forty characters wide,
1: and almost like the the length of the width of an iPad, or
0: yeah, or or just a just a standard braille page, you know, which is uh, what. Uh, 11 by 11 and a half. That's the standard size Braille page. So if we say, okay, fine. If we could design something of that size that would allow you to connect it to a computer and actually uh, mimic an entire page in Braille that you could read line by line by line very quickly as you do a standard Braille page and something that is also lightweight easy to carry around, I think that would really open the doors in terms of actual people saying, you know what, it's no big deal. I can now read novels in Braille. I can just flip the page, essentially push a button, the next page comes up, the next page, similar to the way a sighted person would use a Kindle device or some other electronic reading machine.
1: So is that doable, do you think?
0: It is doable. question is cost to, to do it. There is a couple of um, companies out there who have made almost prototypical multi-line Braille displays. The problem is that they weigh, you know, 14 (laughs) pounds. They're slow to refresh, very slow to refresh. In fact, it's painfully slow. They're really not practical. But if and when the day comes, and I'm sure it will, that we can create a 25-line by 40-cell Braille page, in braille electronic format. So what would that be, be like?
1: Eleven by eleven. So eleven by eleven. A little and bit, a half. little big. Oh, okay, so a little bigger than what we are sort of seeing as the standard um, uh, iPad size right now. Yeah, exactly. So are you familiar with uh, some of the the technology that's being done um, with the, the iPads and the braille sheets? So the idea is that there's a sheet that goes over top of the iPad. Mm-hmm. And what uh, shows up on the – so it's a sheet that's already done. So when it goes over top of the um, the program in the iPad, it allows a child to maneuver and understand the screen better because they're feeling it at their fingertips and also hearing it or interacting with the iPad. Are you familiar with this at all? <clears> or?
0: I, I'm not really familiar with it, although I have heard about it. Okay. So I'm not you – know. So
1: if they're doing things like that, I mean, maybe it's not – as far in the future as we think?
0: I think it's relatively close. And I think that what I'm, um, you know, what I would ideally like to see, obviously other people have thought of and people are working on it. So it wouldn't surprise me that within the next three, four, maybe five years, we actually don't have a, a standard hard copy braille page in uh, electronic format. And when we do, I believe the floodgates will open in terms of people's interest in learning reading Braille reading books in Braille again. The problem right now is that there just aren't a lot of hard copy Braille books available. The, the uh, selection is limited, where you know back in the 60s, 50s, 70s, it was massive because that's the way we read.
1: And there was big areas of storage libraries dedicated to, to storing these things that are just not available anymore.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, I recall, uh, you know, going back to the late 70s, even digging about it in the CNIB library, there were shelves and shelves full of hard copy Braille books. And I was receiving three huge 15-pound canvas bags a week of Braille, and I was consuming it. I was a voracious Braille reader and loved it. Now I don't do that.
1: It's interesting. I remember being at the school library and actually being able to go in and browse the books, the Braille books, just like any other student could do. And that's just not something that our Braille readers have access to anymore. I mean, we have, you know, the you can request it and people are like, oh, it's so much easier. It'll be made just for you now. But there's a lot of time and a lot of cost involved in all of those things. Well, you know,
0: when you think about it, um... Like anyone else, if you're a Braille reader, a lot of people who have, have vision as well go out to their local library and just uh, go through the stacks. It's a whole ritual of a hard copy book in your hand, reading, opening it to, you know, page one, reading the preface, continuing into the book. And it's like anything else. With Braille, it was the same. It was opening that package, getting out your book, opening your book, that, that tactile experience that well, we don't get anymore it's all electronic and yeah it's great it allows us to carry around reams of material at <laughs> yeah. any given time which we couldn't do with uh, with hard copy but there is a place for it
1: well i remember when my kids were little that was a very exciting part of, of the week or the the month or whatever is when the print braille books came in because again oh, it was yes. having those it was having those books that i could actually then Uh, be able to read to my children, and I remember being totally annoyed with the grade one (laughs) teacher who said, well, you know, he probably would be doing better if he was read to at night, and I was thinking, you have no idea, lady. Um, I had one that had sleep problems, so I did a lot of reading at night. You were reading, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And when your new books came in, the kids probably said, Mom's books are here. We're going to get some new ones. And I remember having
1: to renew and renew and renew some of the books that just – but uh, even availability and the cost factor that was involved in getting some of these books uh, available. Chris, thank you so very much for coming in today. I really have enjoyed our conversation, and maybe we'll have you come back and – Especially when we get this new item on the, on the market that we're dreaming about with the electronic Braille.
0: Well, Rhonda, it's a real pleasure being here and able to talk about Braille, which is one of my life's passions.
1: Well, we need to speak up and get Braille at our fingertips, maybe a little more than... I think it's it's people like me that have come back to braille and said what have I been doing all these years like I think that's you were saying it's it's the availability of it and and just the the impact of my of independence on the braille users and and how we can be become more independent and not expect somebody else to read things for us because it is available or we can make it available to ourselves.
0: I couldn't agree with you more.
1: Thank you so very much Chris. For
0: more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.